0: Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 8. Our message series is called Lessons from a Growing Church. And as we come to chapter 4 now in this letter to the 1 Thessalonians, uh, we come to really a major transition point in the letter. In fact, you can take the whole letter uh, of 1 Thessalonians and you can divide it into two sections. You've got chapters 1 through 3, and then you've got chapters four and five. And up to this point, Paul's mainly been talking with the Thessalonians about things that happened in the past. Now he turns his attention to the present, how they're living now, and the future, what's going to happen. Paul also shifts from what we might call a narrative style to one of direct instruction and exhortation. And this is very common. Paul does this all this time. He usually begins his letters with narrative or doctrine And then he moves into direct commands. He says, okay, this is what we've learned so far. Now, this is what you should do with it. And so the second part of his letters are always very practical. And that's what we find here in chapters 4 and 5, a variety of instructions. God instructs us how to worship and fellowship together. Um, He speaks to us about the return of Christ and about those who've already died in Christ. He gives us directions about our work habits. And he even, get this... He even pries into our sex lives. And you might say, well, how dare he do that? Well, he's God, okay? So he can pretty much do what he wants. And uh, the good news is this, is everything that God does, he does because he loves you and he wants the very best for you. God is on your side and you do well to pay attention to his commands. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, we're just going to read verse 1 as we get started. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Verse 1, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Well, dear Lord, as we look into your word this morning, uh, we have a challenging portion of scripture ahead of us. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts through your holy word, through your holy spirit. Lord, where there is sin in our lives, we would repent and turn away from that sin, and we would receive your forgiveness and commit our lives to you anew. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Do you desire to please God? In all areas of your life, do you desire to please God? Paul gets real personal with us here in our passage today because he gives us God's instructions concerning a very personal part of our lives. Uh, In today's verses, we find specific instruction concerning our sexual behavior and conduct. We live in a country that is obsessed with sex, Sex saturates our media, it propels the advertising industry, it captivates the minds of countless millions of people every day. You cannot drive down I-95 or even check out your groceries at the counter without being confronted with billboards or magazines which in some way are communicating about sex. Now, there's nothing wrong with sex in and of itself. God created us as sexual beings, and sex is supposed to be an important part of our lives. However, when we ignore God's commands concerning sex, we only end up hurting ourselves and other people. And if we want to please God in all areas of our life, We need to do it in this area, too. We need to know what God requires of us in the whole area of sexual behavior. You know, we hear a whole lot today about practicing safe sex, right? You've heard that? Well, in the Bible today, God tells us how to practice sanctified sex. There's a new term for you, okay? How do you live in order to please God? We please God sexually when we practice sanctified sex. Sex. There's an outline in your worship guide. I encourage you to take it out so you can follow along and jot down some notes. But let's take a look at our passage now and see what this sanctified sex is all about. Verses 1 and 2 really set the stage, gives us the overall context for our passage. And the context is simply this, is a commitment to please God in every area of your life. In fact, these two verses really serve as an introduction to the rest of the letter because that's what we're going to be doing for the next number of weeks. As we finish off, we're going to see God's specific instructions. How do you please God with your work? How do you please God in the body of Christ? How do you please God when it comes to Christ's return? All of these areas. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me now. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Notice Paul says, we instructed you. He says, we already told you this stuff, right? Paul wasn't teaching them anything new here. He was simply reminding them of what he had already told them before. The Thessalonians, they didn't need any new revelation from God. They simply needed to obey the commands that they had already received. And what had Paul instructed them? He told them how to live in order to please God. Paul uses a series of present tense verbs here which indicates he's talking here about a lifestyle. Okay, A conscious decision in your life to live your life in such a way that is consistently pleasing to God. He's not talking about occasional acts of obedience here or there. This is your chosen lifestyle. There is a way to live which pleases God, and there is a way to live which displeases God. God's told us the difference. He's given us guidelines. He's laid out the path before us. It's important that you know not only how to become a Christian. That's pretty important, right? Not only how to become a Christian, but also how to live the Christian life. And Paul did not merely share the gospel with the Thessalonians. He also taught them. How to live in order to please God. And as Christians, that should be our main aim in life, right? We live not to please ourselves, not to please other people. We live to please God. Notice Paul also encourages the Thessalonians here. He tells them, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. So the Thessalonians, they're doing good here. They're not living lives of radical disobedience. Their faith was strong. We saw that. They were sharing the gospel. They were loving each other. They're already living in ways that are pleasing to God. But you know, there's always room for growth. And so Paul says, now we ask you, we urge you, and the Lord Jesus, keep doing this. Do this more and more. It's a, a phrase which literally means to abound or to overflow. God does not demand perfection from us, but rather progression. We will never reach perfection in this life, but God does expect us to grow and to grow in holiness. So we will live to please him more and more as we go through life. The word that's translated instructions here is a word that literally means commands or charges. It was a military term. Uh, it was used for the commands given by a superior officer to a soldier under his command. Did you know in the military that they don't really offer you suggestions? You know that? You know, you know, the, the colonel, private, um, you know, I'm thinking... What do you think about doing 20 push-ups today? Ah, not today, sir. I'm feeling kind of tired. Had a late night. That's ah, okay. Don't worry about it. Not a problem. No, it's like do 20 right now. And you get down, you do them, right? In the military, you ish- issue commands. And those commands must be obeyed immediately, completely, Precisely. And Paul says, these commands that he's giving, he says, I give by the authority of the Lord Jesus. These are not Paul's commands. These are not Paul's ideas. They come directly from the Lord Jesus himself. They carry divine authority. And so in these first two verses, Paul sets the context for practicing sanctified sex. It's not a matter of legalism. It's not a matter of asceticism or pride. It's simply a matter of living to please God. Verse 1 presents the positive goal for following these instructions. We seek to please God in all areas of our life. Verse 2 presents the authority behind these instructions. These are commands that are given to you by the authority of Jesus Christ. Next, Paul takes this general command, okay, a very general command that we should live to please God, and he applies it to a very specific area, our sexual relationships. And in the process, this next section now, he tells us how to practice sanctified sex as a believer. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me now. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Paul states it clearly right up front, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, people often think of God's will more in terms of the major decisions you make in life, right? What job should I take? Where should I go to school? Whom should I marry? And yes, God is concerned, okay, with those major decisions. But you know what? He's even more concerned with the way you live your life on a day-to-day basis. If you follow God's revealed will in your day-to-day life, the commands he's already given you in his word, you know what? The rest of your life is going to take care of itself. And if if you're not following God's revealed will day-to-day, then how do you expect to recognize God's guidance at those major or key points in your life? People often think about God's will as something hidden, Or mysterious, but you know there's nothing hidden or mysterious about it right here, right? Simply put, God wants you to be holy. God's great overriding interest in your life is not your bank account, not your level of success, or even your happiness. His great concern is your sanctification. He wants to make you holy. And if you are a Christian, God will do whatever it takes to get you there. The word sanctification means to be set apart, dedicated, or consecrated for God and His purposes. Here it speaks of your personal growth and holiness. Did you notice how Paul has moved from the general to the specific uh, as he goes through these verses? First of all, he talks about living to please God. Well, that's kind of general. Well, how do you please God? Well, you follow God's will. Okay, that's a little more specific. Well, how do I follow God's will? It's God's will that you be sanctified. Oh, okay, well, now I know his will. He wants to be able... Now he gets even more specific. He talks about one particular area, because there are many areas where we need to be sanctified, but one particular area that was crucial for the Thessalonians, that's crucial for us today. He gets down to the nitty-gritty of what it means to practice sanctified sex. And he gives us three instructions here. You'll see all three in your outline. Avoid sexual immorality. Learn to practice self-control. Treat each other with honor and respect. Let's look at all three of those instructions. First of all, avoid sexual immorality. And the word translated avoid here means to abstain or refrain. And so as Christians, we must make a clean cut with sexual immorality. That means we don't make any room for it in our lives. We must abstain from it completely. The Greek word for sexual immorality here is porneia. This was the general word for all types of sexual immorality, whether premarital, extramarital, homosexual, prostitution, incest, or any kind of sexual sin, all included in that one word. Now, you've got to understand that sexual sin was common, even prevalent in Greek society. The Greeks viewed sexual sin as something minor. It's no big deal. It was overlooked and commonly accepted. The Greeks actually expected the men in their society to have sexual relations outside of marriage. They just expected that. Sex with slaves or prostitutes was common. It was common for the wealthier men to have a mistress alongside their wife. And for those who worshiped idols, sexual sin was even a part of their religion. In short, the Thessalonians lived in a sexually permissive society And they have to make a choice between following the culture or following God's commands. Does that sound familiar to anyone? (laughs) Isn't that exactly the the culture we're living in today? Sexual morality, it's no big deal. You know, the culture says it's okay. You know, we sometimes don't realize what a huge impact the culture uh, has on our lives. And that's because we're living in it, right? It's all around us. We're like the fish that doesn't really notice the water because that's all it knows. It's all around them. This world constantly tries to mold you into its image. The culture uh, assaults you relentlessly with its own values and ideas. God, however, does not accommodate His commands to culture. God still holds up the highest standards for those who belong to Him, God's word must govern your behavior, not what the culture says is accepted. Now, notice that Paul does not say to abstain from sex, but rather from sexual immorality. And once again, people sometimes get this odd idea that God is against sex, or the Bible somehow frowns upon sexual activity. And that is so far from the truth. The the Bible honors sexuality. The Bible celebrates sexuality within the context of marriage. Sex is God's idea. This is his good gift to mankind. The Bible nowhere condemns sex, only sexual immorality. The Bible is realistic. The Bible teaches us that sex is one of God's gifts to us, one of God's good gifts to us, but also recognizes the great pain and damage that sex can cause when it is not used properly. Think about fire for a minute. Think about a fire in a fireplace. Cold winter night, you get the fire in the fireplace and it's warm, inviting, protective, intimate. As long as you keep it in the fireplace, right? But if it gets out of the fireplace, oh boy, it causes great damage. It can burn down the house or even take a life. And it's the same way with sex. Sex is safe within the fireplace of marriage. It's warm, inviting. Protective, intimate, nurturing. But you take it out of the fireplace, and it will burn you every time. So that's the first way you practice sanctified sex. You avoid sexual immorality. You sanctify sex by setting it apart to save and reserve for marriage. That's number one. Number two, learn to practice self-control. Look at verses 4 and 5 now. Paul writes that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And so Paul speaks here now about the importance of self-control. We looked at that this summer under the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice this instruction is directed to each of you, okay? This is a command to each individual believer. Each of us, every person in this room myself included, should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Did you know that the Bible accords great honor to your physical body? Great honor. In fact, it says elsewhere that sexual sin is a special kind of sin. It's different from other sins. Why? Because it is a sin against your own body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 says this, flee from sexual immorality, all other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Paul says this is in direct contrast Uh, with those in the world, right? Verse 5, he says, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. See, as a Christian, you should control your desires. Your desires should not control you. And when Paul speaks of the heathen, he's not talking about people running around in the jungle, somewhere in South America or Africa. He simply means anybody who doesn't know God, those who do not know God. Why does the world have such a vastly different sexual ethic than Christianity Paul says it's because they don't know God. Romans chapter 1 teaches the same thing. uh, connects sexual immorality with a rejection of the knowledge of God. Think about it for a moment. Sexuality is at the heart of your identity and being. We are created as sexual beings. We are brought into this world through sexuality. We equate sexuality with intimacy, and we all long for intimacy. Unfortunately, when we disobey God's commands for sex, we cut sex off from the intimacy God intended for us within the security of the lifelong commitment of marriage. Now, the true intimacy that we all long for is our relationship with our God and creator, which is restored for us through Jesus. So if we don't know God, if we're missing out on the ultimate intimacy that we're looking for, what happens? We naturally act out sexually. We look for it in other ways. The crux of the matter is this. Christians who do know God should act differently from those who do not. We don't have any excuse. We know God. We know his love for us. We know his commands. We should be different. Sadly, some surveys indicate that Christians and non-Christians are virtually indistinguishable when it comes to certain moral behaviors. And although we have different beliefs, we don't always exhibit different behaviors. That's wrong. It should not be that way. Christian single women have sometimes told me horrific stories of dating experiences with supposedly Christian single young men. And folks, this should not be. The world should look at us as Christians and see a marked difference in our lives. As Christians, we must pursue a radically different sexual ethic than the world. We need to practice sanctified sex. How do you do that? We've looked at two ways. Avoid sexual immorality. Number two, learn to practice self-control. And this third one is so important too. Treat each other with honor and respect. Look at verse six now. Paul writes, And that in this matter, no one, should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. In other words, you must treat each other with honor and respect. Let's take a look at these two phrases. To wrong someone, in verse 6, means to transgress, to overreach, to go beyond or to exceed the proper limits. Isn't that amazing? Do you see how that applies to sexual sin? You see, when you sin sexually with someone, what have you done? You've overstepped the bounds. You've gone beyond the proper limits of your relationship with a person who is not your spouse. Teenagers often ask the question, well, how far can you go? Right? That's a big question when you're a teen. and What's the proper limit uh, for sexual expression? And Sadly, our world is in total moral confusion on these issues. And instead of teaching our children abstinence, and the importance of saving sex for marriage many schools and parents just pass out condoms and tell their teens to have make sure they have safe responsible sex what have we done we've overstepped the bounds we've exceeded the proper limits safe sex is not the answer sanctified sex is sanctified sex is really the only safe sex sex within the proper limits that God has so lovingly designed, sex reserved, for the security and safety of marriage. Paul says, don't wrong anybody in this matter. And then he says, don't take advantage of anyone in this matter. It's a word that means to defraud someone, to claim more than you're owed, to take more than one's due. And we apply it to to, to, uh, this verse. When you sin sexually with someone, you not only overstep the boundaries, you actually defraud the other person. Why? Because you are taking something that does not belong to you. If you commit adultery, you take from the person's spouse. If you engage in premarital sex, then you take from that person's future spouse. If you choose to live together before marriage, you take away from your own future. Study after study shows that couples who live together before marriage experience higher rates of divorce marital dissatisfaction, and even spousal abuse than couples who wait until marriage to live together. Why would you want to set yourself up for that? Don't defraud yourself or other people. Don't take advantage of another person sexually. Rather, treat each other with honor and respect as God commands. Okay, so we've looked at the context for sanctified sex. It's living to please God in every area of your life. We've looked at God's directions on how to practice sanctified sex. Now, finally, in our closing verses here, uh, God gives us four motivating reasons, four reasons why you should follow God's instructions in this area. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me now. Paul writes, The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Notice that these four reasons, these four warnings, are not directed at the world. You know, a lot of time you know, in church you know, we talk about, whoa, what, what does everybody out there do? No, these are directed at us, these are directed at the church. As Christians, we must practice a different sexual ethic than the world. Why? He gives us four reasons here. God's punishment, God's call, God's command, and God's gift. Let's walk through these now. The first reason is God's punishment. We saw that in verse 6. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. What's our first reason for obeying God's instructions? God says he'll punish you for sexual sin. Literally, the the verse says that the Lord is the avenger. That means he's the one who does what is just and right. And so when you take advantage of someone sexually, when you defraud them, when you take something that does not belong to you, God is their avenger. This speaks of a present tense judgment for sin. Not judgment day off in the future, but right now. It tells us that sexual sin brings painful consequences. And just because you are saved, do not think that you can sin without consequence. Yes, God forgives you. He will forgive you, but the consequences are real. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. First reason, God's punishment. Second reason, God's call. We see this in verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. See, God doesn't want you to be motivated merely by fear of punishment. What a a horrible way to live, right? I mean, it's there, it's real, but he doesn't want that to be the main motivation. You should also be motivated to holy living by your calling. What a high and beautiful calling God has given you. He's called you to himself. He's called you to salvation. He's called you to heaven in the future. And he has called you to living a holy life now in the present. That call goes all the way back to the day of your salvation. You see, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you accept everything that Jesus has for you, including salvation, deliverance from sin and impurity. We are saved to be sanctified. God saves us not just to forgive us, but to make us into a new and holy people who will one day live in the very presence of our great and holy God. God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Third reason is God's command. Look at verse 8. He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God. This word reject here means to to hold something as null and void, to to do away with it, to set it aside, to choose not to recognize it. It's a present tense participle that signifies a settled attitude or conviction. This is not a random act of disobedience. We, We all stumble and fall into sin, We confess that sin, we turn from it, we get back up, we keep walking. No, this is a settled decision. It's like, I know God's word says this, but this is what I'm going to do instead. This is how I choose to live instead. I'm making a conscious decision. And Paul says that when you consciously choose sexual immorality over God's commands, you reject God. And according to the definition, that means you refuse to recognize God. You set him aside, you consider God as of no account in your life. Paul says you're not rejecting man. Paul says hey I'm just the messenger here. The message comes from God. He who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God. And then the fourth reason so important is God's gift. That's what Paul writes at the end of verse 8. God, it's God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And the giving of the Holy Spirit, that's thats what defines you as a Christian, right? A Christian is not simply someone who goes to church or or believes in God, or, or, or has prayed some prayer, a Christian is someone who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you were born again, when you were born of the Spirit, God's Spirit now lives within you, and He draws you closer to God, and He gives you power over indwelling sin. The verse literally says God gives you His Holy Spirit. He offers His Spirit to live in you. And he says this in the present tense. It's, it's, a, it, it's very unusual. Usually when Paul speaks about receiving the Spirit, he talks in the past. Because, right, it happened when, when you trusted Jesus, you received the Spirit. God gave you the Spirit. Now he says it's God who keeps giving you the Spirit. In other words, God continually gives us of his Holy Spirit in order that we may live a holy life. And so when we give in to impurity, we sin against God, who at that very moment, is offering us His holy Spirit to help us. He is God's holy Spirit, and to choose immorality is to reject God's gift. Now let's back this up. You remember where we started today? Do you remember the ultimate motivation behind all of this? It all starts with a desire to please God. And if you desire to please God, that means you want to do as well. Well, what's God's will? It's God's will that you be sanctified. And then that leads us to the area of sexuality. If you want to please God sexually, you must practice sanctified sex. How? Avoid sexual immorality, practice self-control, treat each other with honor and respect. Why should we follow these commands? Four reasons, God's punishment, God's call, God's command, God's gift. God will punish those uh, who... Practice sexual sin. He does not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. If we reject his instruction, we do not reject man but God. God gives you his Holy Spirit. Let me sum it up for you now Christian commitment demands a radically different sexual ethic from the world's. The world says, if it feels good, do it. Christianity says, If it pleases God, do it. And if it doesn't please God, don't do it. So I encourage you this morning, first of all, to repent, to turn away from any sexual sin in your life, then commit yourself to pleasing God in all areas of your life. That means I'm not going to do things the world's way, I'm going to do things God's way and make a fresh commitment to live a sanctified life and to follow God's good rules for sanctified sex. Let us pray. Well, dear Lord, this is such a challenging passage this morning. It, uh, it reaches each of us at a very deep and personal level. Lord, we've all failed you in so many ways in life. and Lord, we're sorry. Uh, for the sins that we've done in the past. And we thank you for the forgiveness and the healing you give us in Christ. Lord, I know there are people here today who uh, have experienced hurt and pain from sexual sin in their lives, whether uh, sexual sin on their part or sexual sin on someone else's part. And so, Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would help us, that you would heal us, that you would forgive us, and we thank you for the precious gift of your Holy Spirit who who gives us the fruit of self-control and who allows us to grow in holiness, that we may please you that we may fulfill your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.